0: Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show, your A through Z, covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between. As John had mentioned before, we got started. Happy Pride! I'm so excited. This actually is the first program of the weekend for me. um, And uh, the first program of the weekend not serving as board president of San Francisco Pride. I feel like a free woman. (laughs) 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 Well, every Thursday, I'm here at the Commonwealth Club with my co-host, John Zipper. He is the vice president of media here at the club, but also does his own program Which is the week-to-week political roundtable talk and uh, he has cats. So he's kind of like (laughs) My lesbian best friend stuck in a gay man's body (laughs) The Michelle meow show is proudly sponsored by pacific fertility center Actually, they are longtime partners of the program ever since it was a tiny 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 radio program and which um nobody would give me a job to talk about lgbtq people to what it is today a weekly sunday night local lgbtq inclusive talk program on kbcw and a weekly program here at the commonwealth club so thank them for providing this platform or being able to support it in telling lgbtq stories Today we uh, are kicking off Pride Weekend with a special talk. And when I think about, you know, 50 years of Stonewall, you have to look at it from so many different facets. The movement itself from the liberation and uh, Stonewall, you know, which marks the beginning of the liberation movement. But also to the way that we have mobilized and organized in everything about our lives, including the ability to form our families. So very proud to have two gentlemen here today willing to share their stories. And honestly, in speaking to one of them or following his social media, at least um, Everything he has shared about his his family is the (coughs) cutest and most loving thing. And I I can't think of anything uh, just more loving to share on Pride weekend. So let's welcome our guests, James LaDuca, who is the new uh, director of diversity and inclusion from a global level at Twitter, and Jeff Titterton, who serves as CEO, marketing executive at Zendesk, And also a very, very special panelist. He's not a gay dad, but he certainly (laughs) has had a hand in uh, creating families uh, for the LGBTQ community, Dr. Eldon Shriok of Pacific Fertility Center. So thank you all for joining us here for the program. I'm going to kick off with a traditional question we ask everyone, regardless if you're LGBTQ or an ally, share with us your coming out story. So we'll start with Jeff.
1: Oh, wow. We're going to have to go way back. Um, (laughs) So uh, I came out in college. Um, Now people come out like my daughter's friends are all out when they're in ninth grade. But back then, people tended to come out a little bit more in college. I came out um, first to my parents. So I... Kind of knew I was gay probably from late high school on, but was in quite a bit of denial about the fact. Joined a fraternity, didn't work out so well. Um, And then uh, really realized it when I was in Paris for a summer abroad program, came back, about six months later, I started off by telling my uh, my parents about it. It was interesting for me because my mom is very, very liberal, worked in the theater, had lots of gay friends. So I thought she would be completely just over the top happy. Um, my dad was a, not conservative, but a little bit more conservative and Interestingly, my mother had a really hard time with it at first because she'd had friends who died of AIDS. She had seen a lot of pain in those people's lives. Um, and so she, you know, instantly became very worried. Um, after that, I just kind of came out to everyone, went through a lot of uh, friend switching, frankly, where I kind of moved on to new friends. And it's been great ever since. Awesome. Yeah.
0: Great ever, since. Yeah. <laughs> great ever since
1: not a single problem since. that's awesome, <laughs> <Yeah>. that's awesome. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> happily ever after
0: <laughs> wait till we start sharing stories of fatherhood <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh,
2: I like to joke that um, my coming out was brought to you by the US Postal Service <laughs> um, or maybe like FedEx when you absolutely have to come out overnight um, <laughs> and here's what happened so I uh, was seeing someone in Chicago uh, over a summer, came back home and went back to college and um, he wrote me a letter um, and he sent it to my, the home that I grew up in where my parents still lived. Um, it was supposed to be forwarded to me, but instead my mom opened it uh, and saw a letter from my lover in Chicago. Um, and I'll never forget, my sister called and said, uh, we got a problem because I was up to my sister. Uh, and it, she describes that my mom has read a letter from my lover and called her saying, what's this? Do you know about it? And my sister had sort of plausible deniability, but she's like, you gotta, you gotta call mom. So, um, that conversation was really rough. My mom's Mexican. I'm, you know, mixed race, Latinx, um, child of immigrants. And it was, it was really, really difficult. Um, and one of the things that I remember she telling me immediately was, um, you have to tell your dad. And, I understand how difficult this is. So I will give you 30 days and you can figure out how you want to tell your dad. But if you haven't told him by the end of 30 days, I have to share this with him because I can't keep a secret from my husband, which was sort of admirable, but also really terrifying. So while I'm wrestling with how to tell my dad, uh, a friend of mine says there's this really great book written by Flag parents called Now That You Know. And if you are in a situation where you need to help acclimate parents to what it's like to have a gay child, that's a terrific resource. So I buy the book. This is before Amazon. Buy the book. Wrap it up. Mail it to my mom. And for the first time in the 42 years of their marriage, my dad gets the mail that day. (laughs) And he's like, oh, a package from our son. And just opened it up. And um, that's how he found out. So... Um, I've never mailed anything ever since. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, the whole process was difficult. My dad's Italian, it's a deeply Catholic family. Um, and it was associated with a lot of the struggles that you hear about parents um, who have a really difficult time based in their faith, based in um, what their cultural practices are, especially in the Mexican and Italian um in the Italian families, but they've come a long way, and I have a fantastic relationship with my parents, both of whom are still alive, um, and they are um, delighted by their baby granddaughter. So, all's well that ends well. Wow!
0: Oh. And Dr. Shriok, I kind of talked about it before we started the program, but I, we'd love to hear your coming out. However, you well, I have
3: that. a. Uh I, I can't share a coming out story, but I should start and put it in perspective. I, I would call a coming in story mm-hmm. first. I grew up in western Kansas, born in Dodd City. And in my little town, I very early, junior high, sensed that I was more inclusive than exclusive. In this little town, the only thing that was different was whether you're Protestant or Catholic. There was no LGBTQ, there's no Jewish, there's no black, there's no color. Um, but when I became the president of my church's youth group, I decided... I'm going to bring the Catholic kids over. Of course, I got called on the carpet by the preacher, et cetera, et cetera. But that started then. Well, luckily, I escaped Kansas, ended up in San Francisco to do my training to become a fertility doctor. And I think I discovered then that it was so much good in in making that happen. So I've devoted a lot of my very early career to that. Um, I think I became chief at UCSF at the time. This is 1985. Uh, there was a policy where it was inappropriate use of medicine to take an egg from one lesbian and put the embryo into her partner. I said, this is not right. So I set up an ethics conference, I set up policy, and I changed it. Well, synchronously, around the same time, my son in the eighth grade uh, came out to me.
1: Mm.
0: Oh. Uh,
3: and I'm so thankful that I had 20 years of friendships, a support network, and all this stuff that I could be not perfect but as supportive as a father as I could be and it's got a happy ending and I've even got another close person in my life now that's in that community so that is my coming in of inclusivity and knowing that this is something important in my life and then my sharing of a coming out story. And then there's other stories Michelle can read.
0: Yeah, yeah, we're going to get to them. You have great stories. Um, let's start with, with Jeff. And, you know, you're here today to talk about your family, yep. which I'm super, super grateful that you're willing to do. But, you know, when we look at our history and where we're at today, I think every opportunity um, we get where we share our story will help shape what our lives are like for the next 50 years of our movement. Yeah. Um, so for you, let's start with that decision, that moment in which you said, I want to be a father.
1: Yeah, it, it, it really kind of came upon me when my, my husband and I have been together for 22 years. Um, and I think what first hit us um, when we first started dating was that we both were really close to our families and to our siblings. Um, our first date, we literally spent talking about our families and our siblings, which is not normally what you talk about, I guess on a first date, but that was sort of where I think it began um, early on in our, our relationship. Um, it wasn't like, Oh, we can't wait to have babies um, because you know, we were forming just our couplehood um, uh, I think what, but because we had that kind of love for our families and love for each other's families over the first few years, um, we really started to think about this as a possibility. I, there was no like aha moment where we said, I want a baby, you know, but we, uh, we started thinking about it. And my husband's 11 years older than me. So, um, at a certain point he said, um, Hey, I'm not getting any younger. I don't want to be, if we're going to do this, um, I don't want to be like 70 years old walking my kids, you know, in a stroller. So we got to like think through this and and decide we're going to do it. So that was probably the moment when it just clicked. And I said, I'm kind of a get stuff done kind of guy. So I said, all right, let's do it. And so we uh, found an adoption facilitator. Uh, We both knew like adoption was the route we wanted to go personally. And we kind of went for it and it went really, really fast. Yeah.
0: yeah. I thought you were going to say it went really, really well.
1: No, I mean, oh, it also because did, because every, everything, everything was really great. No, <laughs> 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 there were challenges. Um, there were challenges, but uh, it 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 did go very quickly, yeah.
0: John?
4: I have a question both for each of the fathers, and then I'm going to have a different twist on that for you, but that is, was there any, I mean, say the now grandparents, you know, presumably they're, James, you talked about they're thrilled to be. I assume, same from your Parents, generation being thrilled to be grandparents. Yes. Initially, was there any fear of, you hmm, know, even if it's a, a an acceptance? Yes, great, you're doing this. We support you. But did, were there any expressions of hmm, this is going to be really difficult for you guys or anything like that?
1: Uh, I, my family was quite supportive. Um, my immediate family was quite supportive. Uh, my husband's family uh, is Mormon um, by uh, their upbringing. Most of them. Uh, there was definitely some, you know, pensive moments there. <laughs> I would say, um, particularly among the ones who were still Mormon, where they had a were torn. Where it was, they were very much thinking. They love kids, right? Mormons are very much, you know, family oriented and children oriented. So they loved that, but they'd been taught by their church that, you know, gay men should not be having children together, um, for sure. They don't even want us to have sex. Um, So (laughs) that was um, tough. Um, Certainly early on, there were a lot of discussions around that and about how the kid you know, how, how would the child be brought up? I think what's interesting, if you kind of flash forward, is actually it's brought us much closer to our Mormon relatives on that side, mm. because now we have something in common. Mm. I mean, we had nothing in common before, let me tell you, you know, mm. two gay guys from San Francisco and the Mormons in Utah. Um, but now we share parenting as a common thing. And I think it's been really eye-opening for all of them. And they've become really inclusive and really supportive of our family. James,
4: was there any, either up? Op- if not, uh, negativity, worry, just even that that loving worry that you know well, this is going to be difficult.
2: You know, I wouldn't describe it as loving worry. I'm I'm the youngest of my parents' three children, um, so uh, they're they're old. My parents now are in their eighties, but when and our baby is two, and so. Um, when we decided to go on this journey, they were, you know, late seventies. And when you picture late seventies, immigrants grew up in the central Valley of California, it was more, well, how's that going to work? And so there was a lot of um, patient explanation of, of what we intended to do. Um, There was, um, there was a lot of apprehension about, whether the timing was right, whether we're choosing the right pathway for our journey. Um, but at the end of the day, I think I, I have the benefit of being their youngest child. And, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, 40 plus years old at this point. So they know that generally I make good choices and they generally support me along the way. So,
4: doctor, for you, you've worked with couples for decades. Have you noticed any change over that time in either the support or lack of support from the parents of the people who are coming to you and, you know, what, what sort of a role do they play either in the, I support, don't really uh, get to meet the parents of my
3: patients. Yeah. So I don't, I don't, I can't have a direct experience there, but I've seen a multitude of changes since I started doing this in 1983 or 1981. So it's much more open accessible there's still lots of challenges but the support structure i think has improved a lot Um, and i think each parent and i speak on that side of the fence addresses it differently i think the issue as a parent uh and maybe me more specifically in a second when i realized my son was gay i knew could foresee all the challenges that he would face that my other two children weren't going to face Mm -hmm. um and not just parenting getting pregnant saying you know (laughs) But also, just in life, so I think that when that experience luckily, I was able to absorb it pretty quickly and yet be supportive, but I think that yeah. that's a challenge
0: well, to add to that question, I mean. Gay marriage, or federal gay marriage at least, same, uh, same-sex marriage, marriage equality—that's um, four years ago. We celebrated yesterday, and so you have been involved in LGBTQ family formation even before we have certain laws in place for us to be visible out there and 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 creating our families without fear of other discrimination. Talk about your very first LGBTQ patient, if you can remember.
3: Well, I, w- I was trying to remember, somewhere in the mid-80s, uh, but often I think, because uh, w- we o- were always supportive of single parenting. And I think at, in the early days, some women would, would present themselves as just heterosexual, I want to get pregnant on my own, would probably not come out to be the doctor. So I, I don't know if I can pinpoint when, mm-hmm. but definitely by 85 and beyond. After that, then it, it became very, very clear. You know, in, in those times, uh, my wife's great had taken us to Memphis, Tennessee, and just because of St. Jude's. And I trained residents, medical students, and I was, after six years, kind of come back to San Francisco. And one of my favorite students, uh, beautiful, smart, great gynecologist, perfect, came into my office crying. And I thought, oh, she's upset because her favorite professor is leaving Memphis and going back to San Francisco. And it wasn't. It was... <laughs> say, Molly, what's wrong? She says, I'm afraid you're going to go to hell. I go, what? She knew, I'm a good guy. She says, because you're going out to San Francisco and help a lot of lesbians get pregnant. Mm. And it's just like, oh my gosh, you know, that chiasm or that divergence of this beautiful physician who's most caring and would work herself to death to take care of folks at the same time. So I think that is something that I then saw another role that I had, not just helping the gay couple the lesbian couple create their families but also to be a model uh and to also educate the and my small little way the public of being accepting
2: you know you you reminded me of an experience i had um so we we worked with a surrogacy agency um and (coughs) step one uh, once the process officially gets started and you're in contract is you make a sperm donation. Um, and so I'm in L.A. to um, make a, you know, make a deposit, I guess. Um, <laughs> well, you certainly weren't going to mail it. Then. Uh, <laughs> <you know that. laughs> it's true. Um, and for some reason, and I've never really thought about it until this moment, I I was, let's say, discreet about what my family situation, what my sexuality was. And I think it was just. I had so much going on in my mind. I had so much noise going on—excitement, anxiety, apprehension—that I just didn't. I didn't feel like having the extra energy of being the educator, the out person, the so like the person that I normally am in everyday life. I just needed this moment to be me. So here I am, um, not wearing something like this, thinking that I am like definitely passing under the radar. I'm just keeping my business to myself and just presenting as guy who is going to make a sperm donation and the nurse practitioner gets me all set up. There's a little room, there's a television, um, with a remote control. The remote control has like a bag over it. (laughs) Um, and they're like, okay, uh, window open. I'll give you all the stuff you need to do. And then right as she's closing the door, she says, I think you want channel four. Oh, wow. (laughs) So I flipped the channel four. I'm like, oh, come
1: on. We have a channel four. Uh, Oh,
0: wow. I love it. I love (laughs) it. Uh, One of the questions that I had was, you know, we, we can talk all day about remembering policies as LGBTQ people that don't necessarily fit in, you know, with, with our community, but um, talk to, you know, what's it like coming out to your community, LGBTQ community as a dad?
1: I, I warned James about this when he was having kids. I said... Um, we're we're, all dear we're friends, old dear friends by the way. Yes, yeah, so, um, and and I what I found is um, you lose a lot of your gay friends when you have kids. Um, you don't lose them like you never. They hate you and they don't want to talk to you. They're all very very well intentioned, and then they never call you again <laughs> um, <laughs> because your life is completely not at all in sync with theirs anymore. So if you think about uh, your Average urban queer life. It's a lot of going out. It's a lot of doing a lot of things. It's a lot of travel. It's a lot of all these things. Um, And then all of a sudden you have a baby and you are um, home with your baby all the time. Um, And so I found that happen. And what we actually found is we ended up with more straight friends um, than we'd had in the past, which is actually kind of lovely because you suddenly are like reconnecting with straight community that you weren't as uh, connected with when you were sort of a about the town gay couple. Um, so that was nice. And we, of course, um, found our way to meet more uh, gay and lesbian parents. Um, that, you know, I my kids are a little bit older, so there weren't nearly as many of them then. I think um, when uh, my daughter's 15, my son's 11, when we first started having kids, it, was, it wasn't an anomaly, but it was definitely, you know, a lot of our friends went, you're what? <laughs> are you sure? Um, I think now there's just, tons of, um, tons of LGBT po- people, having kids. Um, and so I think they have more of a community that they probably can have, um, you know, daddy play dates or mommy play dates that are not your traditional straight family, um, mommy play dates. James. Um,
2: yeah, I mean, I re- I remember you describing that shift and you really don't, um, you really can't describe it until it happens. Um, I was warned ahead of time that there will be shifts, changes, you know. Um, so I, I was expecting, my husband had a much more difficult time with it. Uh, he was really eager to hang on to some of his closest friends and have nothing change. And so we, we had to do a lot of communication between the two of us, really appreciating how much has fundamentally changed in our life. And the way that I help myself and ultimately him sort of wrap our heads around it is, our, our, I don't know about all of you, I can speak for myself, my friend circles have shifted throughout various life cycles. You have certain friends in college, some of them you stay in touch with, some of them you may not. You have different friends when you're in your 20s, your first job, new city, doing the things that you do. And in different life stages, you, you know, there are shifts. And this is a really big life stage and it's a really big important shift, but it's really no different than any of the other shifts that go on in your life. And um, the beauty of it is there are some that, just like your friends from college that you stay in touch with, That doesn't matter what happens in your life, they're still your friends. And so it really helps, um, helps remind you who always will show up for you no matter what's going on in your life. Um, and that's also been a really beautiful blessing.
0: Hmm. John?
4: There are lots of ways. Of lots. There are a number of ways you can, of course, become a gay dad. Um, I have a friend who basically, he and this, I think he had been, a, um, what is it, when you legally divorce your parents, and so he, the teenager had divorced his parents because they, they hated him because he was gay, the two of them kind of adopted each other, mm. and oh, wow. the, the, you know, but I don't think it was any, ever through any le- legal thing, it was just kind of them saying, okay, you know what, this is the arrangement we're going to have. I'm basically going to be your dad. You're going to be my son. And yeah, you're going to follow my rules, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera. Um, But then there are others, of course, who go through adoption anywhere from infant on up. And of course, there's fertility treatments and surgery, uh, surgery. Uh, 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 surrogacy and all that kind of stuff. How did you start with the fathers? I mean, how, how did you choose what path you wanted to pursue? You know, when you, when you said you, you, you decided, okay, now's the time, oh, how do you know how to do it?
1: Yeah, I think, um, first of all, I, I think surrogacy was significantly less common back then. It was, it was happening, but um, I think it was less of a common option. I think we very much uh, both felt that adoption was, we, we kind of aligned pretty quickly that we wanted to do, do, do adoption. Um, we felt there were lots of kids um, out there in the world who needed uh, needed love. And we felt, you know, really passionately that we could help them. Um, and they could help us of course, and create a family that could be uh, really happy together. Um, we also both had siblings who had um, kids. And uh, so I think we didn't feel any sort of biological imperative, but that was, that was how we came to our decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. James. Um, great
2: question. And I'll, I'll travel back in time a little to get to how we ended up using surrogate. So I'm, I'm actually divorced. Um, My ex-husband and I were in 2008 married, we had been together five years, and we became literally the poster children for marriage equality and um, the fight against Proposition 8. Like our our wedding photo was on posters uh, (laughs) to help educate people about um, the need for opposition to Prop 8. We uh, had always talked about starting a family, Um, so we had aligned and decided we were going to do a process called open adoption, which is when you um, get matched with a a pregnant woman who has decided that she doesn't want to keep her baby, but she wants to know the family that's going to be adopting it. Um, And we had gone through an orientation process. We had actually put a a $10,000 deposit on starting this process together. And we were just about to go to an event where we had the opportunity to meet some people um, to be matched with. And um, he, um, very long story short, shared with me that he had had a change of heart and didn't want to be a father. Um, And that led to a really painful year and a really painful divorce. Uh, and a really painful reckoning in my life. Um, I can look back and be super grateful. Um, that took a lot of therapy. Um, but um, through that process, what I, what, I, what I was reminded of was I, all my life, had seen myself as a dad. And it was something, there are a lot of things that I would sacrifice and compromise on for my partner, but that just simply wasn't one of them. Um, and so as I was reaching my forties, um, I was beginning to be very, um, distraught that I didn't have, uh, uh, consistent love interest in my life. And I was feeling really forlorn and anxious about this idea of, you know, similar to, to Jeff's partner, you know, I'm about to be 40. I want to do this thing. And, you know, I, I don't know how and when to start it. And a, a couple of really wonderful people in my life, Jeff, one of them said, you know, why, you know, why don't you just, why don't you just do it? You know, you wouldn't be the first single parent in the world um, to do something like this. And there's certainly you have more resources than a lot of single parents and a loving community to help you along the way. And um, and so when I decided I was going to do this journey on my own, um, there was a shift that had happened in, inside of me, and having a biological connection to the child became super important. Um, ironically, as soon as I made that decision, um, someone who I was dating in New York moved out to California, um, and we became serious, and it became our journey together. So it was really wonderful. Wow.
0: Well,
4: Dr. Shirk, do the people who come to you in your clinic, do they... Are they still thinking, oh, it could be this option, or maybe we'll try adoption, or we'll whatever? Or uh, did they come to you and they've already made the commitment mentally and financially? This is what they want to do. Most of the time
3: now, not 20 years ago, 30 years ago, we would review all the options, and not, we still will. But most yeah. of the people already, by the time the gay get couple gets them off, they kind of know what I can provide, and that's, yeah. that's, that's why they're there. Uh, but I don't think any of them can really uh, predict the journey. I, I always really encourage them to. It, treat it like an adventure. There'll be ups and downs. We'll get through it. But this conversation prompts me to share one story about um, how it can be again inclusive. Or the, once you're a parent, your life changes. Uh, a gay couple came in, a pretty traditional. Uh, they wanted to use one egg donor. They wanted to use both their sperm and their, and two carriers. And so we did that. We um, fertilized eggs. They each had beautiful embryos with both of their sperm. We put one of their embryos into one carrier and one embryo, of the other guy in the other carrier, and they had have, they have two healthy children. Well, synchronously with this kind of all happening, another couple, heterosexual couple from the valley, is seeing me and they're struggling and she's probably running out of eggs and it's trouble. And what they decide is to take some of the edge off of their city trip to the fertility doctor They takes a cooking class. And so they take a cooking class and they're with this gay couple and why why are you coming into the city and said well we're having trouble with fertility i said well who are you seeing oh dr shriak oh we just saw dr shriak (laughs) and it, it turns out the gay couple two years later donated some of their excess embryos to this heterosexual wow. couple at the valley. Right. And now, from these excess embryos, they have had two pregnancies and two children. That's beautiful. And now you have this family of four children that are genetic siblings, parented by four of the most beautiful people you'd ever <laughs> want to meet, who have become really good friends. Oh, that's wonderful. And so, you ne- I never imagined that scenario might happen, but that's, that happened five, six, seven years ago. So, you, the, in terms of evolving of what... Yeah. What, what can happen and all the potential if you are open to ideas, uh, the the beauty that can be there. This
0: question is um, for the dads. Uh, I, yeah, you're all dads, except I guess John and I. Uh, well, John, you have. Cats. Yeah. We know. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, more and more dads are becoming vocal about dad rights. I mean, call them dad rights. But, like, an example is Ashton Kutcher, who really started talking about, you know, um, maternity or um, not maternity, paternity leave and, 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 and bathrooms, right. Restrooms where they always have the changing table Mm -hmm. for the, the mothers, but they don't really have the changing tables in the men's bathroom for the fathers. Um, I'd love to hear from the fathers, and especially the gay fathers. Kind of like, what are what are some things that you, through you know, being a gay dad, uh, that you would like to you know talk about? That you would like people to know? Like, we should change the culture in this way. I, I'll
1: go first. Uh, I think one thing you know, when you talk about those like travel moments, uh, biggest thing I realized having kids um, as a gay man was. You come out over and over and over again when you're two guys with a baby. Um, Two women with a baby, not as much because women in our culture are assumed to be parents, right? Um, We literally have had um, flight attendants say to us, where's the mom, you know, um, when we had little children, when we had babies, you know... um, that is a disconcerting feeling. Uh, I'm a little more, uh, I was brought up in the Northeast, so I'm well, a little I more. You said disconcerting feeling. <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I was brought up in the Northeast. We kind of keep it a little Very quiet. polite. I'm a little polite. My husband is not at all <laughs> like that. So he'd be like, Rah! you know, and just like <laughs> yell at them um, <laughs> and tell them what the, you know, blank, blank, blank. Do you mean, um, where's the mom? And, uh, But I think for me, um, that kind of points to the need for our society to accept um, that dads are parents too, right? And I think when you see – there's been huge shifts in my life. When I first had kids, there was no real parental leave for dads, at least at the companies I was working at. I was like, all right, so we'll see you in like a couple weeks, right? You know, And and I was frankly working at an LGBT company back then. So it was just not really a thing that um, was really – that common. I think at the very big companies, yes. Now at the tech company I work at, uh, at Zendesk, people take six months off, four months off, right? And that's very, very common. So I think there is a a big shift going on, but I think it's still in pockets, still in bubbles. And we need to sort of see that sort of disseminated throughout the culture. Yeah,
2: Yeah, um, I totally agree. And I think, you know, a a good frame, a good way to think about it is the way that the culture shift around marriage equality um, sort of evolved as laws were evolving at the same time. And I think that's that's sort of where we're at with LGBTQ um, parenting and families. We need to remember that there are a lot of states in this country where LGBTQ people can't foster. Um, and that, to me, is sickening. Because when you think of the most needy children and the most vulnerable children in our country, it's those that are in foster care. And to deny them for any reason an eligible set of parents or an eligible parent simply because of someone's sexuality um, is abhorrent and that needs to change for sure. Um, So there are laws that we need to continue to fight for with regard to parenting and families. Um, And then we also need to Jeff's point to work on the culture part of it. Um, It's super important. Um, The closest I ever came to confrontation was on a flight back um, from a vacation that we were on. The baby was still pretty little. She was six, seven months old. And we were, it was a long flight. Uh, There were other children in a row because it's where like you could put bassinets. So there were a lot of babies. Um, The other babies had been babies all flight long. They had, you know, had bouts of crying, bouts of being upset. And it got to a point, and, and our daughter is, and I'm not just saying this, extraordinarily well-behaved. She's just like she's just like a super happy baby. And so uh, probably like seven, eight hours into the flight, she wakes up. She doesn't know her surroundings, and she gets upset. And she comes as close to a meltdown as she's ever come, but she's, she doesn't melt down really. But she's crying inconsolably. I can't console her. Charlie can't console her. Um, and it is very similar to what has happened with other parents throughout the last seven, eight hours. And a flight attendant comes up and literally gestures and said, give her to me. I'll do it. Mm. And for some reason, um, I was deeply, deeply offended by it. Um, and I think it had, there were a lot of things going on. She hadn't done that to any of the other parents whose children had melted down, um, And she had not, throughout the course of the flight, really uh, recognized us as a family in the same ways. Um, So that that was just sort of like the straw that broke the camel's back for me. Um, But I also recognize that I play a small but important role in helping change people's minds about what families look like. Um, I'll share one more quick anecdote, which is when we brought the baby back from, um, when she was delivered, our surrogate lives in Rochester, Minnesota. So, um, four days into her existence on this earth, we find ourselves in the airport in St. Louis, Missouri, two men with a newborn infant flying back to San Francisco with her. We got a lot of looks throughout the airport. Um, and some of those looks are because babies are adorable, so you, you you know immediately when you're getting that. Oh, that's a sweet look. And then you, you also know those other looks. Like we just, especially if you're LGBTQ, you know what those looks feel like. There, you don't even have to. There's like the, the hairs on your neck start to go up. Um, so we get to the um, we get to the um, check-in counter, and there is an older. Latino gentleman, which reminds me of most of my, my tios. And he looks at me, looks at the baby, looks at me, sort of looks, Charlie is sort of over my corner behind me um, and says, is this your child? Um, and I said, yes. Um, and he looks again and says, is there a second parent here? I said, Yes. He's right there. And in this moment, I'm just, I, I'm bracing for it. I'm like super ready for like, I become very aware of in our backpack is the legal adoption papers. I'm just, I'm, I'm ready. Um, and after what feels like the longest pause in the history of the universe, he looks at both of us and says, Felicitaciones, my daughter... And her wife just had their first, and I'm a new grandparent. Oh. And I, I, I still get emotional thinking of that moment. I got emotional in that moment. Um, but it, it for me, it's just it's a powerful reminder that every moment is an opportunity to help connect with someone and expand their understanding of what families look like. And if we armor up and hide ourselves and are ready for a fight like I was in that moment, I would have denied myself that opportunity for connection, which was uh, probably the most memorable um, exchange I had at the beginning of um, our parenthood journey. Goosebumps. (laughs)
0: I think you've got it a few times. Um, By the way, we will open up uh, questions for our panelists to the audience, and we've got a roving mic, so start thinking about them um, after this question that I'm going to ask. And it's to Dr. Shriok. James brought up a very great, good point that we, we don't have. Equal rights throughout the entire country in some states. We have more some states. We have less and more and more states, especially um, Since a new administration uh, And the new president are trying to pass laws uh, That allows for establishments to reject services uh, based off of a Religious belief or or there's an out that you know an establishment can make an out if they want to and it's very much uh, in, in in my opinion at least uh, directed to the LGBTQ community in a form of discrimination. So for you you've mentioned, you know, helping LGBTQ families since the 80s, so even when laws weren't in place for us um you'd already made that decision. So where I'm trying to get at is it's it's real courage that you'll continue to help LGBTQ, you know, families even if there are policies, there are laws um that would tell you that you might be breaking them or that you have the opportunity the chance to discriminate against somebody i'd love for you to to touch on that in terms of that courage and that that inclusivity that you were talking about and and to reject this idea that you would be able to have a choice to say no to someone just because they're lgbtq
3: well i think i was lucky to be able to discover the importance of that before i became a parent of a gay child because mm-hmm. that was 20 years later so because in, in reverse you know i could see that well yeah, once you're a parent you face these issues and deal with them but i think my commitment for inclusivity and equality happened much earlier and i, I don't really know where it all c- came from but I'm, I'm i'm glad it's there i think it's we have fought some fights and lost and some have won uh, There's a law that, uh, you know, like who can be a sperm donor and who can't? Who has to have sperm quarantined and who can't? Uh, There's a tissue bank law, like when you get blood at the blood bank, you have to be tested for HIV and hepatitis. Well, that transferred into eggs and embryos. So before you make an embryo with a gay sperm and put it into the GC, you have to prove that there's never, ever been a disease transmitted from a sperm source to a GC, ever. This law, in Can my you mind, what DC is? Oh, gestational carrier, the surrogate. Sorry. Um, and when I come in, and the, the gay guys have to get screened, and I, you know, I always feel like I have to apologize. I fought this when I lost. I tried to say that this is unnecessary, but it happened in the Bush administration. This law came in, and that wasn't being supportive, right? It was meant to be a barrier, uh, but the, the the laboratory lobby, who gets the kaching, was stronger than us. And so it's still there. So those are some examples of fights we've won and fights that we've lost, but we'll keep working at it. And I think that's, uh, I've had, your story is one of the best Mm -hmm. (laughs) at the check-in counter. But once you've been there, and I've shared some of mine, and you feel the warmth and goodness inside, that you just want to do more. Mm -hmm.
0: All right, time for your questions. If you got a question, John's coming around with a mic, and you can address um, our panelists, Jeff, James, or Dr. Shriak.
5: Anybody have a question? Well, is it alright to make sort of a comment instead of a question? Sure. sure. Uh, <clears throat> my name is Bill Jones, and I'm probably the oldest person here. I'm 91. Um, my son was born in 1966. And in 1967, I applied uh, to adopt, and he was, they made the placement in 1968. And in 1969, it was finalized. So what happened, I didn't, it wasn't my doing. It was the doing of a straight woman. Uh, Her name was Dorothy Murphy. She was the head of the adoption agency in San Francisco, and they had 850 children that they couldn't find homes for. Older children, mixed blood, you know, handicapped. And um, I wrote for a brochure on how easy it was to adopt. And I said, you may not want to send it to me because I'm a single man. And they got in touch with me. They were waiting for somebody to show up like that. Uh, So it just turns out I am the first single man in America to adopt a child through a social service. Wow. Yeah. But I don't, I don't claim, uh, you know, credit for that. That was Dorothy Murphy that did it. Um, and to prove it, I brought a, one of the uh, papers. That would, it was in, this is from Hawaii. But at the time, it was, it was big news. Uh, it was in Paris Match and London Times. And wow. we were flown to New York for interviews and stuff like that. Um, unfortunately, all of us who adopt, all of the single people who adopted... Uh, got, well, most of them were two years old because they were born addicted uh, to heroin because the mothers were addicted. And so they were taken away from the mothers. And it takes two years for things to clear through so they can be uh, up for adoption. And so most of them were two years old. And all of us had problems with our children. Um, but it was worth it because once you love a child, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what the problems are. You just love them. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, my son died of heroin when he was 30. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's, I'm still grieving. And that's, been a, and that's been a long time. So this happened 50 years ago. So I'm celebrating um, the 50th anniversary of my mm-hmm. adoption. Wow, oh. um, That's about all I have to say.
4: Thank you. Wow. Thank you.
5: Hey. One more thing. Hey, it cost
4: me $67 to attend. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I Question back here.
6: So I uh, really appreciated your story about the the flight attendant, James, because I, I recognize that uh, we're dads of twins two and a half years now. And, Congratulations. And, uh, thank you so much. It's, um, and I, I recognize from that story that there's like, thousands of little micro moments with the mother-in-laws and with the nannies and in public when it's assumed that even though we're in Berkeley and we're great dads, that because we're men, that, that somehow we don't have the same empathy and emotional bandwidth as as women would. And, and it's been interesting to sort of examine where that lives internally for me and, and then also just how, like, I, I really appreciated how you... Um, talked about those opportunities and, and, you know, to not get blown out and offended, but to actually use them as as education points. And, and I'd, I'd love it if if you had anything to share about sort of the more intimate people in your life that are all in, you know, they're, they're pro-LGBT and they're like, they check all the boxes, but they're still like more of a gender role assumption that, you know, we're not the ones in the middle of the night that they want to lie on our chest or we're not that, you know, so, you know, just, just to sort of, like, I think you guys were talking a lot about the, the big sort of brazen <laughs> stereotypes that we're changing in terms of dads can be parents, but there's also more subtle and actually much more daily intrinsic gender stereotypes that we're changing in that, you know, there doesn't have to be a mommy around for kids to feel completely held and, and emotionally married. And, and so anything yeah. you want to say about that? I'd love to hear. Well first of all, congratulations
2: on your family. Um I mean we for me personally, I could spend a whole hour talking about this. Yeah. Um there there are so many instances and and I wouldn't be surprised if you get this. Um we get all sorts of questions like, you know, where's the mom? We get questions about like who's the real dad? Mm. Um, which is quite possibly one of the most offensive things that you could ask a same sex um couple. Um we, I I believe, at least speaking for my family, because we are very aware of the gender stereotypes associated with parenting and because we are two men, we go the extra mile in trying to be super awesome parents just because we know that we're under a greater microscope when we're out in the world. Um, and we have a lot of, straight parents who we have wonderful friendships with who are like, yeah, by the way, you guys are kicking our asses in the parent category. And we're like, yeah, cause we, <laughs> you know, we really have to try. Um, but, but the, we're confronted with the gender stereotypes all the time. We also travel a lot. Um, and so when we go internationally, it is also further compounded because there's just the natural presumption that um, the mother is the mother and the father is an accessory. Um, so it's, I wish I could say I was, I was perfect at it. Like I can tell you these really wonderful stories that make you go "Ah," or like, Oh, that person's mean. Um, and every day is different, right? It depends on how much sleep I've had. If I'm in a good mood, what's going on in my life. If, you know, if I'm, if I've had a fight with my mom that night, like that will, that will determine, do I show up? present and vulnerable and try to make this a moment where we connect and I try to expand your thinking about things or do I make a really obscene comment to my husband under my breath and just keep going? (laughs) Um, And and, you know, I I try to aspire to be that person all the time, but I'm I'm certainly not there yet. Um, And I think, you know, I want to certainly thank the hosts of the show. The more the more conversations we have about this and the more we share our stories all of our stories. Um, I think the more um, sensitive we become to um, the realities of gender norms and gender stereotypes. I love um, we actually just participated in a Pampers campaign. Pampers made this commitment to install 5000 changing tables in men's public restrooms Mm. over the next two years. Um, So we were big supporters of that. Um, Alexius Ohanian, who, if you don't know his name, um, co-founder of Reddit extremely successful VC where you will absolutely know him as he also happens to be Serena Williams' husband. Um, <laughs> Mr.
0: Serena Williams. <laughs> he is Mr. Serena Williams.
2: Um, and really good at it, by the yeah. way. Yeah. Um, he is on a campaign to get more men to take full advantage of their parental leave um, to one, to equalize family leave at the federal level for all genders. And then two, to make sure that men take it. Cause What ends up happening at a lot of tech companies in particular is like, I I guess I had a choice, but I never thought I had a choice. Like I'm like, I'm gonna take my family leave. Um, But in a lot of heterosexual relationships, the female takes the full family leave um, for recovery from childbirth, nursing, all the things that you would expect. And the male takes a portion of it um, to get back to work right away. And one of the things that Alexis is campaigning on, um, and I'm I'm a strong supporter of it, is taking your full family leave is not only good for you and your family and your baby, but it's also good for your coworkers and standards. Um, When I was about to take my family leave with our daughter, I was at Salesforce at the time, brand new team, um, brand new job. I was new in the role. And um, a female colleague who I really liked came to me um, right before I was getting ready to go out on leave and said... Um, can you tell me, you, you know, how much family do you think you're going to be taking? I said, you know, this is a high pressure job, new role. I'm thinking maybe like three months, four months. And she said, so if I may be so bold, your female colleagues on this team, uh, we've all had a conversation and I'd like to ask you on their behalf and all of our behalf to take your full family leave. Because... You're the first person on this new team to do it. You're a male, and what you do will set the standard for everyone who comes next. So take your full family leave. Um, and it's it's small things like, you know, I'm Mr. Equality, Mr. Gender Equality. It would have never have occurred to me that taking full advantage of family leave is not just good for me and my family, but it's good for cultural norms in the workplace.
3: It's high on my next, my list of things I'm going to hopefully make happen, and that's uh, even to the point of enforced, have to take paternity leave because <laughs> it be nice. around the boardroom who's going to get that next contract mm-hmm. i mean that's what you have to do i think the even to all of our playing fields yeah.
6: but they'll come but around the corner i hope um, i wanted to thank everyone for sharing their stories it's been really inspiring my husband and i are going through the journey um and just match with our surrogate so oh. it's been yay. Helpful. yay congratulations thank you um one question that we've been thinking about and wondering especially for the the Dads and, and
1: for you, potentially, are what do your kids call you? Are you both called dad, or do you have other or do you, I you think we're the same? Aren't we? Different names? Uh, we're, we're daddy and papa. I'm papa. There was a my husband felt very strongly that he wanted to be daddy, and I didn't care at all. So it's like, okay, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'll be papa. Um, yeah, and it's worked out great. Yeah, <laughs> I'm
2: papa. He's daddy. Um, and interestingly, that came from um, being Latinx, I you know, I always call my dad papa. Um, and my husband always called his dad, daddy. So it just felt natural for both of us. We have friends
1: that are dad and daddy. Um, I think, you know, there's all sorts of iterations. One thing I will tell you is that when they become teenagers, then they start, you know, my daughter calls me pops, which is to, you know, sort of make me feel bad about myself, (laughs) you know, to let me know I'm not that cool. Uh, But yeah, so they start to play with those names a little bit as you get older. It's fine. You should know if you you pick Papa,
2: if you pick Papa, there is a greater than 50% likelihood out in the world you will be mistaken as the grandfather. Mm -hmm. And if you happen to be... 10 years older than your husband
0: <laughs> that might be
2: a slightly sensitive point for you oh my
1: and so just bear that in mind i have a question for dr shayek oh yeah um could you walk us through some of the i guess decision points when if you've decided to go with the fertility option and and maybe you know i'm sure the costs and finances range quite a bit like how it is in the low end or upper end, just to have a better idea of... Just an
3: overview? Yeah. Well, uh, usually that takes, that's about a 60-minute phone call, which is, they're here, they can set that up. But um, (laughs) in general, I sometimes see myself as a general contractor, uh, because there's a lot of people, subcontractors on our team that's going to make this work, and... Don't beat up. The, it takes a village, but it does. And so uh, the process overall can take three to six months. I want to become a parent. What do I do? Uh, but you need someone that's going to do the, the medicine and science of the IVF cycle, get the sperm and the egg together and put it into a uterus. Uh, but then you need someone to help you. So who's going to be the egg donor? Someone who's, who's going to be the gestational carrier, the surrogate. Um, you'll. It's very important to have a... a a legal team—they don't have a big role, but very important one. Uh, we think having a, a counselor—we actually provide it as a free service. I think that's really critical. That part of it, in this day and age, there's a genetics part of it that becomes important. Uh, if you want to do genetic testing or not, um, so there's a lot of those pieces that sort of have to come to, get, to come together, but. Uh, there are many variations to the theme. You can get fresh eggs now. You can get eggs out of an egg bank now. All all those are options. Um, the costs. Uh, the biggest cost is the cost of the surrogate, the gestational carrier. Uh, the entire IVF cycle to make the embryos and transfer them is twenty to thirty thousand. But a, a gestational carrier can be eighty to one hundred fifty thousand, depending on the flavor. So it's very expensive. I think. <coughs> one of the things we talked about is, you know, what are my gay potential dads afraid of or scared of? And, and more and more, I think is. All my patients have that same thing. I don't care if you're a single guy, single woman, you're heterosexual, gay, you're all concerned about becoming a parent and being a good one. And so those things for a good thing now are kind of shared. There's not, I don't see that much of a difference anymore. I think what makes it unique, maybe the one hard decision that we're struggling with still is um, you want two kids, but you can only afford to go through it once 150 grand. You don't have 300 grand, but you want two kids. And the issue is do you put one embryo or two embryos into the surrogate at the same time, because if you put in two nowadays, the success rates are so high, it's, it's almost a for sure twin. But it's also very clear now that um, twins just aren't as healthy as singletons. So I see it as a real hard decision that my gay couples struggle with, because it's a health of my children versus money decision. And it bothers me. I, I, I'm, I, we have to come up with a solution. I just want to take the money away, but that's not reality today. Uh, cause the best thing is to get a surrogate pregnant twice and you have your two kids. But, so I see that as one example of a tough decision that's still on the table that I don't have a really good solution for yet, but that's really quick, but I can fill in the details anytime.
2: The other thing I'll just add, um, to build off that is because I wish someone had told me this. Um, it is an adventure mm-hmm. and that is, that is looking at it from the most optimistic and Rosie, start um, out that way. <laughs> perspective um you know i went into it thinking oh miracle of medical science great find a find a sperm find an egg fertilize it put it in and was thinking that it was going to be a relatively straightforward process and it's probably the least straightforward process i have ever been a part of yeah. in my entire always
3: life. ups and downs um
2: just just to, to the point that you made i was the rare exception so we put in two and one took And medical science today says that that's extremely rare. So we were preparing for two um, and had some grieving to do when we found out that there was only one. Now, in retrospect, just for our life, we think, oh, thank God. (laughs) (laughs) But at the time, we didn't know what we know. And that was a really difficult emotional period where we found out we only had one. Um, But there were so many twists and turns and setbacks and surprises that happened even before we, the transfer occurred and we were pregnant that in our journey from the moment we decided we wanted to be parents to the time that she entered the world was three years. Um, And so I wish someone had told me if, if you're thinking about this as something that you want for your future, just start because if you wait until you're fully confident and fully ready, which, by the way, PS, I think never happens. I think mm. no one ever thinks like, "Now I'm ready. Now's the perfect time to disrupt my life." Um, <laughs> you, you, you're you're in for a long journey just to get to the point where your child arrives. Um, and so, you know, get get going sooner rather than later is the advice I'd give. It's great advice.
0: Do you want to add anything, Jeff, because that was actually my last question was for each of you to give some advice for potential parents, especially very scared ones, uh, scared people to actually make the jump like my wife and I. It looks like there's another couple here who are just as scared as we are.
1: I don't be scared at all. Billions and billions of people have children and have been for many, many years. Um, no matter what, you know, as LGBT parents, um, our path to parenthood is more challenging generally than the uh, the typical route. Uh, but um, it's a beautiful, wonderful thing. Um, and you know, I give all this advice to parents: go out to a lot of restaurants. Go travel a bunch, do all that fun stuff and get it out of your system because the second (laughs) the baby's born, um, you are going to do a little bit less of that. So, yeah. Awesome. Unless you're James, but that's
0: all. <laughs> <laughs> well, our program is coming to an end, but we have a special announcement before we officially end it. Uh, very, very, very so grateful to Pacific Fertility Center for this. And we mentioned it earlier. It, there is a huge cost to it, which is probably one of the biggest fears for LGBTQ parents. So they were very generous in offering a $5,000 grant to a potential um, interested parent. And we're going to go a full month's um, uh, talking about this and sharing it with our community. Uh, so if you want to opt in, you can do that by hitting up Dr. Shriok and his team. But how do you, how do, you do that? Is that info at com? That's it. Or you can hit me up at yep. meow.com and we'll get it to the right team and they'll make a selection of, of whoever... Um, gets the $5,000 grant. And I promise you $5,000 is a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. um, and there's also a another extension to that. They're offering a $99 consultation, which is valued at $375. So for any of you who are here today you might be interested in that. Uh, Team PFC is in the back there. And this applies to anybody who's listening on the air as well through Commonwealth Club or Progressive Voices Network. I want to thank you all for joining us here today. It's the Michelle Meow Show here every Thursday at the Commonwealth Club, but we do have a special program tomorrow. Uh, The producer of Tales of the City from Netflix will be here with us, Lauren Morelli. She'll share her story of how she got there, uh, who she married, and, um, and how we get more LGBTQ people in front of the cameras and in the writing room so we can continue to share our stories. Happy Pride, and we'll see you next time.